0: old pond frog leaps in waters sound that is the haiku known as old pond which is considered to be the best known japanese haiku it was written by matsuo basho who was a famous japanese poet who was mostly recognized as the greatest master of haiku a very short Japanese form of poetry in three phrases consisting of five syllables, seven syllables, and five syllables. I'll share with you a Zen haiku I wrote in late December of 2019, one winter morning looking out my kitchen window at my neighbor's garage roof. The night's frost sparkles in the early morning sun, only for so long.
1: Hey, hey there. Welcome back to Catholic with a Zen Mind. I am your host, Joseph Martin. And as always, this is the podcast here where we take a look at Zen Buddhism. We bring along with us Christian thought, Catholic traditional teachings, and we analyze zen buddhism and we find out just what is zen buddhism, what's behind it. we analyze their teachings, the ideology, their practices and we see what they might have to offer us in christian thought which, you know, in some cases there's a a fair amount, in other cases there's not my goal here is being someone who fell into the traps of Buddhism myself, as a Catholic, is to illuminate those traps while pointing out things that Catholics might find appetizing. We just finished going over all of my five pillars of what it means to be a Catholic with a Zen mind. We're going to move on this episode, and we're going to do something that was actually somewhat requested we're gonna do a little bit of a history of Zen I've asked my cousin Mr. Uh, or Sir Rufus von Lichtenstein Jr. the third to come back uh, to help me and to help me present to you a somewhat comprehensive history of Zen Buddhism and we'll be going over Taoism we'll be going over Indian Buddhism, we'll be going over Mahayana more of the Chinese Buddhism we'll be going over the different schools of Zen well at least two of them now the one thing you have to keep in mind is that there's a lot of Zen history it's a tradition that's been passed down orally and now through writings more recently for 2500 years much like Taoism, it's a very long and rich history. And it takes a lot to get through. So, this episode ended up being quite the big one, quite long. If you want to learn about some of the history of Zen, some of the people that were involved, and some of the stories of the people that passed down these Zen traditions, then stick around. We'll meet up with Rufus, and we'll go through our presentation of a history of zen we'll move on here and uh well if you're not interested in the history of zen that's alright I've got plenty of pillars and other episodes for you to go and listen to until I get to the next episode after this not quite sure what it'll be I might do some meditation, some rosary episodes or I might just start a history of catholicism who knows but right now we'll tackle Zen and its history. So we'll meet up with Rufus and we'll go from there. Enjoy, everybody. All right. So, Rufus von Lichtenstein the Third Junior, present. Welcome back, man. That's a Zen pun. You said that it is. That it is. It is as it is. It is. Um, Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Uh, What have you been up to lately? Anything, anything good, particularly? Uh, Cleaned up the house some today, prepping for the show,
0: Um, been working on the garden outside and got uh, some mulch moved, you know. Quite the Zen gardener. Yes, quite the Zen guard. Trying, trying to be like uh, Matsuoku Fukuoma. <laughs> yes.
1: Uh, I have a hard time pronouncing that name, so I'm not going to try again. I got, I think I got it close to right the last time I tried, so I'll just leave it there. Um, so we're here today to go over kind of a history of Zen. Um, not so much all the doctrine, because I mean... That's what the rest of the show is for. But this is just kind of some dates, not not as many dates, but some dates, Uh, names, successions, stories, stories, history, story, histories, right? All sorts of all sorts of different things, and uh, we've got particularly we've got different points to cover. We've got uh, points such as Buddhism, uh, Mahayana Buddhism. Um, we'll eventually go into Zen Buddhism, but we also have the Chinese uh, Taoism uh, and Lao Tzu and and all of that um, to go over. Uh, so that's kind of why I asked Mike to join me is because it is a lofty topic. Not only is it a lofty topic, it's a little bit more scholarly, scholarly than the you know topics I've been covering so far. And I figured... Uh, you give me a good hand with that because you're, well, you're a math tutor. <laughs> so happy, happy to do what I can. <laughs> so I figure we'll go ahead and start here and uh, we'll just hop right in with Buddhism. And uh, I'm going to read a quote here out of Alan Watts, where he talks about some of the problems that actually rise when you try to look at a historical account of Buddhism, um, where it comes from, and all those sorts of stuff like that. Uh, obviously, as I've covered before, Buddhism is an offshoot of uh, uh, Hinduism. I couldn't think of it for some reason. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Buddhism is the offshoot of Hinduism. Um, we'll, we'll tell the story about that later and how uh, the man credited with I guess not really founding Buddhism because you really can't say that he found it, uh, but the guy that everyone did find it though. Well, he did find it. He found it in the sense that he was looking and he, he saw it and he found, um, but he didn't found any particular concrete. He didn't try to maybe he did. Who knows? (laughs) I don't. It was so dang long ago.
0: I think he just figured something out and wanted to share it and then that became a thing.
1: Uh, yeah. I think you're probably right there. So, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and read here out of uh, Alan Watts, The Origins of Buddhism. Um, and here he talks about, like I said, uh, Indian Buddhism. Uh, it, it came from Hinduism and, st- and so on and so forth. Uh, so right here, he says on page uh, 30. <clears throat> there are some serious difficulties in the way of giving historically accurate account of Indian Buddhism, as of the whole philosophical tradition from which it arose. The first and most serious is the problem of interpreting the Sanskrit and Pali texts in which ancient Indian literature is preserved. This is especially true of Sanskrit, the sacred language of India, and more particularly the form of Sanskrit used in the Vedic period. Both Western and Indian scholars are uncertain as to its exact interpretation, and all modern dictionaries rely heavily on a single source, the lexicon compiled by Balthlink and Roth in the later part of the last century, and now admitted to contain a great deal of guesswork. This seriously affects our understanding of the primary sources of Hinduism, the Vedas the Upanishads. The second is that it is extremely hard to know what was the original form of Buddhism. There are two sets of Buddhist scriptures. The Pali canon of the Theravada or southern school of Buddhism, which flourishes in Ceylon, Burma, and Thailand. And the Sanskrit-Tibetan-Chinese canon of the Mahayana or northern school, which is what concerns us, and we'll go over later. There is a general consensus of scholars that the Pali canon is, on the whole, the earlier of the two, and that the principal sutras, as the sacred texts are called, of the Mahayanas canon were all compiled after 100 BC. However, the literary form of the Pali Canon does not suggest that it represents the actual words of Gautama the Buddha. If the Upanishads are characteristic of the style of discourse of an Indian teacher between 800 and 300 BC, they bear little resemblance to the tediously repetitious and scholastic style of most Buddhist scriptures. So he's he's basically just saying it's really hard to pinpoint where the True tradition lies where the pinpoint, the start of history for for Buddhism itself really lies.
0: Yeah, especially when you're going back as far as we are here. I mean, we're talking 2,500 years ago, and for a long time, many people didn't have the ability to read or write. So you're relying primarily on oral tradition, which I mean right. is a a little harder to uh nail down i mean we're relying on written Mm -hmm. tradition and what we need is the oral tradition and history is a giant game of telephone sometimes
1: (laughs) it really is it really is what's the uh what's the quote he who controls the present controls the past who controls the past controls the future or something like that and history is written by those who stop the bleeding or something like that i've heard something like that before yeah that's I think I paraphrased like four quotes together there on accident, but who knows? Um, so really what, what they're saying is to, to understand, uh, Buddhism, you got to start with, uh, sounds they they mentioned Gautama and I know you like giving me trouble for my pronunciation yes. of his name. Gautama, 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 yes. It's Gautama. Yes. As, I, as I've always said, I never get his name right. Um. Now I'm actually putting a lot more effort into it because of you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's basically, I guess, where we should probably start is with good old Gautama. Um, so I'm going to jump over here into Zen Catholicism by Dom Graham, where he talks about Buddha, <clears throat> the historical Buddha. Gautama or Shakyamuni, as he's also known, lived probably between 560 and 480 BC in the northeast of India. The traditions concerning the Buddha and his alleged sayings, or sutras, are of course sacred to Buddhists. But it must be remembered that the historic existence of Gautama as an individual is of little importance to Buddhist faith. The Buddha is a type embodied in this individual, and it is the type as an ideal to be repeated or reproduced, which interests the religious life. Thus, Buddhists consider the Buddha as a spiritual principle, and as they call him, Tathagata, which means, he who has thus come, as there have been more than one Buddha." So I think that's a particular Particularly uh, uh, important point that he he states there is that it's not necessarily uh, Gautama or Shakyamuni. It's not necessarily uh, Gautama himself.
0: Yeah, it's not. It's not all about one person here. It's mm-hmm. it, it, it is more um, that like Gautama was one of the. He was really the prime example and the first person to. Um, he, he wasn't the first person to achieve enlightenment. They say uh, Amitabha was mm-hmm. the first person. And that was yeah. a long time before uh, Shakyamuni or, or Gautama came right. around. But um, Shakyamuni Buddha was the first to achieve enlightenment and convey it to others um, right. in, in sort of a, a formalized way. Right. So that that's really why it's named after him. it's not that he was some sort of god we know that buddhism is a a, an atheistic philosophy yes um it's or i guess it would say non-theistic right there is no there is no deity right right
1: so um so he goes on to state here in the book he says what may safely be said is that buddhism arose as a reaction to the speculations and ritualism, which were the chief preoccupation of India's ancient priestly caste. He's talking about Brahmanism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I might have to go back and cover Brahmanism in a, in a later episode. Just exactly what Brahmanism is. The
0: caste system and yeah, all, all that. Brahmins uh, basically were the priestly class. They were the Bra- highest class. The uh, caste. Sorry.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, Buddhism as had Hinduism before it later developed into a religion, with its characteristic dogmas, moral code, ritual, and even scholasticism. Considered in itself, however, such underlying philosophy as may seem to be present in Buddhism is merely incidental, as will be shown by its development in Zen. The Buddha broke with Hinduism by his refusal to interest himself in metaphysical questions. He was concerned not with laying down propositions about the nature of the universe, but rather with the practical problem of making human existence bearable, and eventually, for those who would allow themselves to be enlightened and so attain Buddhahood, blissful. The Buddha's last injunction to his disciples ran, "...all conditioned things are impermanent. Work out your salvation, With diligence." The chief means to salvation are not outward deeds, though a conduct of life is implied, but contemplation and meditation effected through a controlling of the mental process. It should be remarked that while there exists an enormous bulk of authoritative writings, the Buddhists possess nothing that corresponds to something like the New Testament. For the first 500 years, the Buddha's teachings were orally transmitted, as we were talking about beforehand. Uh, <clears throat> so that's all Dom Graham has to say about uh, Buddhism. The origins the of, of, of actual yeah, Buddhism yeah, itself. Right. The yes. origins of Buddhism. So we'll see what Alan Watts has to say. Uh, he's always got something to say about nothing. <laughs> so Alan Watts here starts to give us an account of. Uh, he starts to talk, give us a little bit more information about Gautama himself. He says, uh, for Gautama, the awakened one or Buddha, and he says here he died circa 545 BC. The times dealing with his life and death are usually a rough uh, guesstimation. Uh, it's, it's you know as what we're talking about basically is it's very hard to establish a direct time or a specific date in regards to a lot of this until later times when the you know the historical records got a little bit more accurate. <laughs> but uh, it says here, for Gautama, the Awakened One, or Buddha lived at a time when the major Upanishads were already in existence, and the philosophy must be seen as the point of departure for his own teaching. It would be a serious mistake, however, to look upon the Buddha as the founder or reformer of a religion which came into being as some kind of organized revolt against Hinduism. For we are speaking of a time when there was no consciousness of religions, when such terms as Hinduism or Brahmanism would have meant nothing. There was simply a tradition embodied in the orally transmitted doctrine of the Vedas and Upanishads, a tradition that was not specifically religious in that it involved a whole way of life and concerned everything from the methods of agriculture to the knowledge of the ultimate reality. The Buddha was acting in full accord with this tradition when he became a Rishi or forest sage who had abandoned the life of the householder and divested himself of caste in order to follow a way of liberation, as with every other Rishi. The method of his way of liberation has certain characteristic features, and this doctrine contained criticisms of men's failure to practice the tradition which they professed." Buddha's experience of awakening, so now he goes on to talk about his awakening experience, um, and he even at the end of this, he goes on to talk about you, you mentioned about how he was the first to actually transmit awakening to another individual. He goes on to mention something about that story. And it's actually rather funny how there are, uh, the uh, Zen stories of how it happened. And then you have the Indian Buddhist stories of how it happened. Yep. <laughs> there's a, there's a little bit of a split there, yes. uh, but he goes on to say, Buddha's experience of awakening or Bodhi, dawned upon him one night as he sat under the celebrated celebrated bow tree at Gaia now I want to go I want to I mention something here real quick the word awakening uh, is known as Bodhi BodHI now the tree it says he sits under it says bow tree at Gaia uh, it's spelled b o um, so I'm assuming that the term Bodhi tree is is that that tree is now known as the Bodhi tree exactly yes. uh, so anyways, uh, he said under the celebrated uh, bow tree at Gaya, After seven years of meditation in the forests, from the standpoint of Zen, this experience is the essential content of Buddhism, and the verbal doctrine is quite secondary to the wordless transmission of the experience itself from generation to generation. For several, for seven years, Gautama had struggled by the traditional means of yoga and tapas, contemplation and ascesis to penetrate the cause of man's enslavement to maya, to find release from the vicious circle of clinging to life, which is like trying to make the hand grasp itself. All his efforts had been in vain. The eternal Atman, the real self, was not to be found. However, much much he concentrated upon his mind to find its root and ground, he found only his own effort to concentrate. The evening before his awakening, he simply gave up, relaxed his ascetic diet, and ate some nourishing food. Thereupon, he felt at once that a profound change was coming over him. He sat beneath the tree, vowing never to rise until he had attained the supreme awakening, and according to a tradition, sat all through the night until the first glimpse of the morning star suddenly provoked a state of perfect clarity and understanding. This was Anutara Samyaka Samboti, unexcelled complete awakening, liberation from Maya and from the everlasting round of birth and death, which goes on and on for as long as a man tries in any way whatsoever to grasp at his own life. Yet the actual content of this experience was never and could never be put into words. For words of the frames of Maya, the meshes of its net and the experience is of the water, which slips through. Do you have anything to say about the story of uh, Gautama's awakening? Yeah.
0: And also uh, to go back slightly further than that for a second, just it it wasn't that Buddha was throwing off Hinduism or Brahmanism, like Watts says in the book, because those terms weren't coined yet, right though. That's just the way it was. That's, that was the all encompassing theory of everything that was transmitted from parent to child, from, from teacher to student, from, um, you know, priest to uh, member of the congregation, what, what have you, that's just what it was. Right, um, like so, the
1: ancient Indian string theory,
0: <laughs> right, or or of in modern days emergence theory, where they're trying yeah. to create a new comprehensive theory of everything, tying quantum mechanics and special relativity together, and it incorporates the golden ratio and all that. But regarding um, Buddha's awakening and everything, um, yeah, I mean it, uh, it. It was it was something. It was interesting. Um, I think I had something to say on it, but I I got myself sidetracked. Going back on uh, (laughs) Hinduism.
1: it happens. The Zen mind is a beast that is tough to cage. Uh, So he goes on to he talks about here where I was talking about the differences between the Zen and the Indian Buddhist idea of what happened uh, when he transmitted his awakening to his uh, his disciples. Uh, It says here in its own probably rather late tradition. Zen maintains that the Buddha transmitted awakening to his chief disciple, Mahakasyapa, by holding up a flower and remaining silent. The Pali Canon, however, relates that immediately after his awakening, the Buddha went to the deer park at Benares and set forth his doctrine to those who had formerly been his companions in the ascetic life, expressing it in the form of those four noble truths which provides so convenient a summary of Buddhism. And coincidentally, I think was the last episode you were here for was the Four Noble Truths.
0: Yes. Actually, I I remember one thing I do want to say is, uh, yeah, go ahead. It was interesting that um, the night before Buddha achieved his awakening, he decided to let go of his um, restrictive diet and just have some food and just be a human and, and just you know, when hungry eat, right? Right. And he, uh, sat down under the Bodhi tree and started meditating and had his, had his awakening. Uh, I find that to be interesting. He happened to release an attachment and then he started to feel a change come over himself. Can't imagine what that was. Like, I mean, d- dude releases an attachment over what he should and what he should not be eating. Yeah. And then, you know, within one evening, Achieves awakening
1: boom there it is <laughs> and that's how it happens you know just kind of creeps up upon you as so, gradually then suddenly yeah kind of like i read in uh with the uh story of Mushin, all yes. the way back in pillar two and a half i think it was gradually then suddenly yeah here comes the train <laughs> all right so um now moving on so we have we have Gautama and we have him passing on his tradition to his disciples. And now basically what what happened from here is just kind of a. a it's secession. Not, it's
0: not dissimilar to what happened in Christianity. I was uh, actually with getting with ready to say branches. something about it's that. A, it's actually also similar to what uh, has been going on in cryptocurrency with Bitcoin. Yeah, um, yeah sure. It, it was founded in 2009. And then in I want to say September or maybe it was August of 2017, uh, after many years of debate on how to scale the technology, um, two competing factions mm-hmm. decided that they were going to have a a schism or in cryptocurrency language a fork. Right. And you have Bitcoin and you have Bitcoin Cash. Mm. And um, ever since then, we've then had Bitcoin. Uh, Gold, Bitcoin, Diamond, Bitcoin Satoshi's Vision, and all sorts <laughs> of other you know versions. It's it's very very similar in in, in yeah. that regard. Uh, so it, with with Buddhism, we broke into several different sort of uh, uh, schools of thought mm-hmm. on the philosophy. Um, there was the the Southern School, which was the Pali version, the
1: Pali Canon. Those are the traditional Indian Buddhism.
0: And then there was the Northern school, which was Mahayana, which
1: is more Chinese Buddhism. Right.
0: You have some Um, stuff on any of that or,
1: uh, well, I have, I have stuff going up into the Chinese and into the Mahayana Buddhism. Um, but real quick, I just uh, wanted to point out what you were saying about, uh, how it's kind of similar to Christian tradition. I was going to bring that up and and talk about how, Later, we'll read in uh, this this book here, Alan Watts's book, when we we're talking about Zen about how they all uh, achieved a certified awakening by someone who had a certified awakening. So that way, it kind of creates a an almost a, uh, apostolic succession, kind of like the Catholic Church and the apostles. It just all it goes all the way back to Gautama, an um, unbroken
0: chain of awakened right masters.
1: So that way, you know, that way you know, the, the, uh, the Roshi that you're going to learn and to learn how to become enlightened from, you know, that he's already been enlightened by someone who's been enlightened by someone who's been enlightened, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's a certificate of authenticity. (laughs) And and it's
0: experiential.
1: Yeah, I I thought that was, uh, I thought that was one of the cooler things when I started learning all this. Um, and what was funny was like secession. I I showed you my mini notebook I have here of probably about thirty names and dates next to them. <laughs> right, right, right. Which totally reminds me of uh, like in Genesis, is it,
0: where they just like they, list they just list the names. the names, they just forever, keep going. Yeah, like fourteen pages of names and so and so well, begat so and so. and then there's also the
1: beginning of the New Testament in one of the books that starts off like that too. Yeah. yeah, It was the it's the lineage lineage of uh, Jesus all the way back to uh, from David and all the way forward and whatnot. Um but yeah so well I really, that well, I really like to control F that
0: page for the word bagat. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. So we'll I'll read here out of um The Way of Zen by Watts and we'll start talking about Mahayana and the uh Chinese uh Indian Buddhist schools. Uh So, yeah, we'll go ahead and we'll go on and we'll read out of Zen Catholicism here by Dom Alred Graham, and he starts, he makes the transition for us from Buddhism itself into Mahayana, and he writes organized Buddhism as a consequence of persecution by the Heftalitic Huns, not nuns, Huns, I almost said nuns, that would, no, (laughs) and later by the Mohammedans, was extinguished first in Gandhara, and then in the whole of northern India. But the essence of the doctrine has lived on to this day in the land of its birth, under the name of Vedanta. It is still the official doctrine of Hinduism at its highest level. Buddhism does not speak with one voice. It has many sects and variety of schools, though all subscribe to the doctrine of the four holy truths. Among the various developments, there is one, though this, again, has split up into a number of subdivisions that particularly interests us. This is a more liberal version of Buddhist tradition, known as the Mahayana, meaning approximately the Great Career, or better yet, the Great Vehicle, by way of distinguishing it from the more conservative Hinayana the lesser or inferior vehicle. As a Dr. Kahn's points out, the Mahayana seemed great for many reasons, chiefly because of the all-embracing nature of the sympathy and emptiness which it taught, and because of the greatness of the goal it advocated, which was no other than Buddhahood itself." So as he always does, Alan Watts, he has something to say about all this. Uh, But before I get to Alan Watts and what he has to say about Mahayana, do you have anything you might want to bring up? Um, I just overheard the words liberal and conservative in there and want to
0: point out that that has nothing to do with politics and has to do with the actual meaning of those words. Right. Um, Conservative meaning restrictive to... Uh, basically conserving the traditional things that were passed on and then a literal meaning, well, no, that's not actually quite as important. Um, You you can, there's a lot of ways to skin the cat. um, And and that's kind of why one is called the small vehicle or the little vehicle. And the other one is called the the great vehicle, Exactly. um, One can carry a lot of paths to to get you to where you're trying to get. And the other one is a lot more restrictive. So
1: that's all. Okay, so, so now we'll move on here, and uh, we'll, read, uh, we'll read about Mahayana from Alan Watts in his book, The Way of Zen. And he says, How and when the Mahayana doctrines arose is a matter of historical guesswork. The great Mahayana Sutras are ostensibly the teachings of the Buddha and his immediate disciples. But their style is so different and their doctrine so much more subtle than that of the Pali Canon that scholars almost unanimously assign them to later dates. There is no evidence for their existence in the time of the great Buddhist emperor Asoka, grandson of Chandragupta, Marya, who was converted to Buddhism in 262 BC. Asoka's rock inscriptions reflect no more than the social teachings of the Pali Canon, its insistence on ahimsa or non-violence to both men and animals, and its general precepts for the life of the laity. The principal Mahayana texts were being translated into Chinese by Kumara Jiva shortly after AD 400. But our knowledge of Indian history during the intervening 600 years from Asoka's death is so fragmentary and the internal evidences of the sutras themselves so vague that we can do little more than assign them to the 400 years between 100 BC and AD 300. Even specific individuals associated with their development as Fagosha, Nagarjuna, Asanga, and Vasubandhu, can be dated only very approximately. The traditional Mahayanist account of its own origin is that its teachings were delivered by the Buddha to his intimate disciples, but their public revelation withheld until the world was ready for them. The principle of delayed revelation is a well-known expedient for permitting the growth of a tradition. For exploring the implications contained in the original seed. Apparent con- contradictions between earlier and later doctrines are explained by assigning them to different levels of truth, ranging from the most relative to the absolute, and of which the probably quite late Avatamsaka school distinguishes no less than five. However, the problem of the historical origins of the Mahayana is of no very direct importance for an understanding of Zen, which, as a Chinese, rather than Indian form of Buddhism, came into being when Indian Mahayana was fully grown. We can pass on, therefore, to the central Mahayana doctrines from which Zen arose. The Mahayana distinguishes itself from the Buddhism of the Pali canon by terming the later the little vehicle of liberation and itself the great vehicle, great because it comprises such a wealth of upaya or methods for the realization of nirvana. These methods range from sophisticated dialectic of Nagarjuna, whose object is to free the mind of all fixed conceptions, to the Sukhavati, or Pure Land Doctrine of Liberation through faith in the power of Amitabha, the Buddha, of boundless light who was said to have attained his awakening many eons before the time of Gautama. This is who you were mentioning earlier. They include even the tantric Buddhism of medieval India, wherein liberation may be realized through the repetition of sacred words and formulae called Jarani, and through special types of yoga involving sexual intercourse with a Shakti, and that is a spiritual wife. So that's pretty much exactly what you were just saying. Mahayana is just a much more liberal form of Buddhism, of just achieving enlightenment or awakening.
0: Right. There's you know? many many ways to skin the cat, not just the ones that we've seen so far.
1: Exactly. And what I really like that he says here is how it's not of a direct importance that you have to understand the historical origins of Mahayana or even just all of Mahayana itself. Amitabha didn't have to. Right. Right. You know, he just had it. But it's, it, to understand Zen, you don't have to understand all this stuff. To understand Zen, because it's a little bit more on the Chinese side, and to understand what I'm getting ready to talk about, we first have to kind of transition into talking about a man from a long, long time ago. Well, not as long as Gautama, but still quite a long time. Uh, Lao Tzu. And his famous work, the Tao Te Ching, and
0: its influence on Zen Buddhism,
1: Taoism. So we'll move to that. All right. And Mr. Alan Watts here on page three, the very beginning of his book, The Way of Zen by Alan Watts, he says, historically, Zen may be regarded as the fulfillment of long traditions of Indian and Chinese culture, though it is actually much more Chinese than Indian. And since the 12th century, it has rooted itself deeply and most creatively in the culture of Japan. As the fruition of these great cultures and as a unique uh, and peculiarly peculiarly instructive example of a way of liberation, Zen is one of the most precious gifts of Asia to the world. The origins of Zen are as much Taoist as Buddhist, and because its flavor is so peculiarly, peculiarly Chinese, it may benefit us to inquire into its Chinese ancestry, illustrating at the same time what is meant by a way of liberation by the example of Taoism. So he just is kind of, I wanted to read that because it, he expresses how important Taoism is to Zen and the, the Zen way of thinking. Uh, yes,
0: Buddhism is the daddy, Taoism is the mommy.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, so I'm going to go in here to, uh, Zen Catholicism by Dom Graham. On page 15, he, in, he starts to bring up Taoism and he says, it was probably not until about the beginning of the ninth century with the decline of official and monistic Buddhism in India that the Mahayanists began to outnumber the Hinayanists. The form of Buddhist faith that was carried to Tibet, China and Japan was the Mahayana, the Hinayana took root only in Ceylon, Burma, Cambodia, and Siam, where it still prevails. The coming of the Mahayana to China brought about its fusion with the native Taoism, so that John is as much Taoist as Buddhist. The Chinese word John means meditation, of which the Japanese form is Zen. The tradition of Zen Buddhism in Japan marked by a rich variety of cultural fruits, reaches back to the 12th century. About these developments, something must now be said. The name associated with the origin of Taoism is Lao Tzu, an older contemporary of Kung Fu Tzu, or Confucius, who died in 479 BC. Lao Tzu is said to have been the author of the celebrated Tao Te Ching, of which a literal translation is the book of the way and its virtue, but which is often rendered more freely as the way of life. It is a short collection of aphorisms setting forth the principles of the Tao and its effectual power. The Chinese Tao, like the Greek Logos, is one of those richly ambiguous words with multiple meanings, none of them exact, for which there is no precise equivalent. Here is how it is spoken of in the Tao Te Ching. The Tao that can be expressed is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be defined is not the unchanging name. There is a thing inherent and natural, which existed before heaven and earth, motionless and fathomless. It stands alone and never changes. It pervades everywhere and never becomes exhausted. It may be regarded as the mother of the universe. I do not know its name. If I am forced to give it a name, I call it Tao, and I name it as Supreme." So that's uh, Dom Graham just kind of giving us a little bit of introduction into kind of what the Tao is and what it's all about. Uh, to really understand that though, let's... I, I kind of want to take a step back first and we'll go and we'll read and learn more about Lao Tzu, the guy that they uh, believe wrote the Tao Te Ching. So I have a, a copy of the Tao Te Ching myself here, and in the beginning it has a kind of uh, story of Lao Tzu. So I'll just read here uh, from that. As with many ancient texts, controversy persists over when the Dao Te Ching was written the details of its author's life and whether the author is a true historical figure. Legend has it that Lao Tzu, the name means old master, was born in the 6th century BC, carried in his mother, mother's womb for 72 years. That poor woman. <laughs> it's a Long pregnancy.
0: Good Talk about labor.
1: Right. He entered the world with the white hair of an elderly man. In his first century BC biography of Lao Tzu, Su Ma Xian reported legendary claims that Lao Tzu lived for more than 200 years. According to Taoist tradition, Lao Tzu was a keeper of archives in the imperial court of the Zhu dynasty.
0: And he was also known as a philosopher. Um, he advocated a, a deep, connective empathy between people as the means to peace and harmony and claimed that such empathy was possible through recognition of the cosmic force of the Tao, which had created all things, bound all things, moved all things, and finally loosed all things back into their original state. Um, Aligning oneself with the Tao, according to Lao Tzu, brought one into harmony with the universe and enriched one's life. Sounds a lot like enlightenment to me. Yeah. Uh, Opposition to the Tao only brought frustration, unhappiness, and anger, which resulted in bad behavior. Sounds like karma. Mm -hmm. Um, He was especially interested in converting the ruling class to his belief because the country was at this time in the midst of the era known as the Warring States Period, during which seven states fought each other nearly constantly for supremacy and control of the Chinese government. The Zhu dynasty was in decline and could do nothing to maintain order because the separate states were all more powerful than the government, but evenly matched against one another. The wars continued and various schools of Chinese philosophy were established, which tried to suggest the best way to end the violence and establish a moral government that would care for its citizens. Lao Tzu, according to Sima Qian, persisted in his efforts to convince people to accept the Tao and live a life in harmony with each other and the universe. And when he finally understood they would never listen to him, he basically abandoned human society for self-exile.
1: Kind of almost like Gautama, if you think about it. As a young man, Confucius sought information about propriety and rights. Central concerns of Confucian morality and he arranged an interview with the older Lao Tzu at court. Lao Tzu brilliantly instructed Confucius on the meaninglessness of his concerns. Following their meeting, Confucius compared Lao Tzu to a dragon in flight, riding on the wind and the clouds, invulnerable to the moral pitfalls that ensnare lesser men. At the age of retirement, the legend goes, Lao Tzu, disillusioned with the state of the government, left his native territory and traveled west by water buffalo. At the border, a guard implored Lao Tzu to write down his teachings, and the result was the 5,000 words or characters of the Tao Te Ching. No more was heard from Lao Tzu after he passed through the border gates, and the date and place of his death remain unknown. Uh, It's not likely that any of that
0: actually happened with the border guard uh, imploring him to write down his philosophy, um, because Taoism in more or less the same way is expressed in the Tao Te Ching, developed during the Shang Dynasty, uh, from the same folk belief and understanding which produced the I Ching, um, that's I Ching, but it's pronounced I Ching, Hmm. A book of divination, which was informed by the concept of the principles of yin and yang.
1: Gotcha. Uh, and actually, in uh, Al- Alan Watts mentions something about this in the way of Zen about the I Ching. Uh, he says traditional Chinese uh, philosophy ascribes both Taoism and Confucianism to a still earlier source, to a work which lies at the very foundation of Chinese thought and culture, dating anywhere from three thousand to twelve hundred BC. This is the I Ching, or Book of Changes. The I Ching is ostensibly a book of divination. It consists of oracles based on 64 abstract figures, each of which is composed of six lines. The lines are of two kinds divided and undivided. And the six line figures, or hexagrams, are believed to have been based on the various ways in which a tortoise shell will crack when heated. This refers to an ancient method of divination in which the soothsayer bored a hole in the back of a tortoise shell, heated it, and then foretold the future from the cracks in the shell so formed, much as palmists use the lines on the hand. Naturally, these cracks were most complicated, and the sixty-four hexagrams are supposed to be a simplified classification of the various patterns of cracks. For many centuries now, the tortoise shell has fallen into disuse, and instead, the hexagram appropriate to the moment in which a question is asked of the oracle. Is, a serm, is determined by the random division of a set of 50 yarrow stalks. So, uh, but yeah, the, the I Ching is definitely more the foundational cornerstone of where we get Taoism and Confucianism from. Yep. Um, but I right. like
0: the stories about Lao Tzu anyways.
1: Yeah, right. Me too. He's a interesting character. <laughs> uh, some scholars claim that Lao Tzu was a name assigned to one of three men, Tan, perfect of the grand scribes, Lao Lai Tzu, an old Taoist sage, or the father of Tuan Kan Sung, another historical person about whom not much is known. Another theory claims that a group of Taoist poets together wrote the Tao Te Ching and chose Lao Tzu as the author's name. Similar theory to uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, the uh, Mm -hmm.
0: pseudonymous author of the Bitcoin paper, that it, we don't know if it was a man, a woman, or a group of people. Plenty of people think that because of the uh, the, the brilliance in a variety of areas, game theory, cryptography, economics, etc that it couldn't have just been one person, that it had to have been multiple people right. kind of forming a super group.
1: Right, um, and that's, really interesting because there's actually a lot of correlation there between some uh, uh, ancient Greek philosophy, Uh, a a few schools. um, I think Pythagoras is one of them. Pythagoras, the man with the golden leg (laughs) and stuff like that. Uh, It's just cool to hear stories of people from back then, like the ancient, ancient historical figures and just the, the mist and the legends that came down along with their name. It's just Yes, Yes. very entertaining stuff. Um, I'm going to switch back to Alan Watts here in the way of Zen. And he has more to say about the I Ching um, and how it goes into the Tao. Uh, He says, every exponent of the I I Ching knows this. He knows that the book itself does not contain an exact science, but rather a useful tool which will work for him if he has a good intuition or if, as he would say, he is in the Tao. Um, So obviously there is a great... Uh, aspect of the Tao within the I Ching. Um, what, ex- what exactly are we saying when we say Tao? What do we mean when we say Tao? To understand that, we have to actually go over the book, uh, the Tao Te Ching. Um, and I'll read here from the introduction of the Tao Te Ching. I'll read the first few paragraphs. It's quite a few pages long, but I'll read the first few paragraphs about you know, what the, what the Tao Te Ching is. The Tao Te Ching is one of the most widely translated classics of all time, and is without doubt the most widely translated work in Chinese. From east to west, generations of readers have marveled at its mystical yet simple profundity. It is considered to be the single most important text of Taoism. However, the question of how exactly it should be classified does not admit of a clear answer. Is the Dao Te Ching a book of ethics? Is it a religious text? Is it a philosophical, especially given its focus on the deepest and truest way of seeing reality? Or is it in fact a work of literary genius, playful, poetic, paradoxical? No doubt the text has aspects of each and can be enjoyed for its poetry, no less than for its reflections on human affairs, life, the universe, and the nature of the good. Nevertheless, one might wonder if there is an essential message to the Tao Te Ching and whether, as a consequence, there is a genre to which this message belongs. Many have called it a book of wisdom, part of the so-called wisdom tradition that predates any single religion and that finds expression in texts as disparate as the Bhagavad Gita, the Socratic dialogues, and the biblical book of Proverbs. These works typically extol the study of both virtue and the obstacles to virtue. They attempt to reveal the path to right relations between humans and to right relations between humans and the universe. Like the Tao Te Ching, these texts often focus on two primary methods by which one can acquire a deeper knowledge of virtue, gaining self-knowledge and rejecting worldly aims and standards. However, if the Tao Te Ching is to be thought of as a book of wisdom, what sense can be made of its attacks on wisdom and virtue get rid of holiness and abandon wisdom and the people will benefit a hundredfold it proclaims in chapter 19 and in another passage on the incommensurability of the Tao and virtue we are told true virtue is not virtuous therefore it has virtue superficial virtue never fails to be virtuous therefore it has no virtue. Upon encountering passages such as these, even the most dedicated reader may feel a temptation or to reinterpret or simplify the ensuing confusion. However, before dismissing these paradoxes as senseless or relegating them to the level of mere wordplay, we must go back to the beginning, the beginning of the text, that is, where there we are told the Tao that can be folded is not the eternal Tao the name that can be named is not the eternal name. The internal resistance of the text itself to categorization, especially as a work that attempts to teach the nature of virtue in a way that can be named or followed is no accident. So that's kind of, uh, that is what the Tao Te Ching says that the Tao Te Ching is (laughs) in the beginning of the Tao Te Ching. one thing I find very interesting, and I I know we haven't read many f- things from the Tao Te Ching, but anytime I read something from it, or or they quote the Tao Te Ching, or even the few passages we've read that Dom uh, Graham has given us, or the few that we've gotten out of the you know the the eternal name or the name that can be named is not the eternal or the eternal name stuff like this, uh, it almost it almost reflects a, 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 a sense of spontaneity. It's almost telling you don't really like live on the that cutting edge of perception. Don't waste your time trying to categorize. Don't waste your time trying to define if you do that. It, it's telling you almost to live in a form of spontaneity, but it's it's almost not entirely spontaneous, and as a matter of fact. Uh, Uh, Alan Watts, he he says here on page 17 in The Way of Zen that the Tao's principle is spontaneity, but he goes on to say that by spontaneity is not by any means a blind disorderly urge, a mere power of caprice. A philosophy restricted to the alternatives of conventional language has no way of conceiving an intelligence which does not work according to plan, according to a -a one-at-a-time order of thought. Yet the concrete evidence of such an intelligence is right to hand in our own thoughtlessly organized bodies. Um, you have any thoughts on that?
0: Well, clearly they're leading us there with the spontaneity thing. Uh, you know, that that's a major component of Zen. And obviously it, Zen got its element of spontaneity from the Taoist side of the family tree.
1: Right. So, in spontaneity, what it, it, it it's it's almost kind of not really saying you know be spontaneous and just decide to do whatever comes to your mind. What they're almost saying is just don't even have a mind, don't like, even think.
0: Or maybe um, just sort of roll with things roll, and, and right. drift with as the wind blows.
1: Right, leaving leaving the mind alone and letting it being carried by where the wind takes it. You know, um, and right here on page twenty two of. Uh, Alan Watts's book, he says the art of letting the mind alone is vividly described by another Taoist writer, L- uh, Laitzu, celebrated for his mysterious power of being able to ride upon the wind. <laughs> this, no doubt, refers to the peculiar sensation of walking on air, which arises when the mind is first liberated. It is said that when Professor D.T. Suzuki was once asked how it feels to have attained Satori, the Zen experience of awakening. He answered, just like ordinary everyday experience, except about two inches off the ground. So we'll we'll read this uh the summary of uh Alan Watts talking about uh Taoism. Um and he says, Taoism is then the original Chinese way of liberation, which combined with Indian Mahayana Buddhism to produce Zen. It is a liberation from convention, and of the creative power of day. Every attempt to describe and formulate it in words and one-at-a-time thought symbols must, of necessity, distort it. The foregoing chapter has perforce made it seem one of the vitalist or naturalistic philosophical alternatives. For Western philosophers are constantly bedeviled by the discovery that they cannot think outside certain well-worn ruts, that however hard they may try, their new philosophies turn out to be restatements of ancient positions, monist or pluralist, realist or nominalist, vitalist or mechanist. This is because these are the only alternatives which the conventions of thought can present, and they cannot discuss anything else without presenting it in their own terms. When we try to represent a third dimension upon a dimensional surface, it will of necessity seem to belong more or less to two alternatives of length and breadth. In the words of Chang Tzu, were language adequate, it would take but a day fully to set forth Tao. Not being adequate, it takes that time to explain material existences, Tao is something beyond material existences. It cannot be conveyed either by words or by silence. So
0: we kind of have the, uh, the ingredients. We probably ought to talk about the Baker.
1: Yeah. So we'll go ahead and we'll t- I mean, we've gone over now uh, Tao. We've gone over Buddhism and Mahayana. It's time to go over Zen, time to mix, mix them together. Yep. Bodhidharma. Um,
0: so most of what we know about Bodhidharma comes from Daoxuan, a uh, 7th century Chinese monk. Bodhidharma's date of birth is unknown, but we know he was active throughout the first half of the 6th century AD. Um, he was born in the South Indian kingdom of Pallava, which corresponds today to the present day states of Tamil Nadu, Karnataka and Andhra Telangana. At birth, he was called Bodhiyatara, the third and youngest son of King Simhavarnam II. The capital city of Pallava was a place called Kanchi, which was a prominent place of Buddhist scholarship with many masters of Mahayana Buddhism coming from there. The king was interested in the Dharma, the teachings of Sakyamuni Buddha, the founder of Buddhism. The king arranged for him and his sons to be taught by the famed master Prajnatara, who was the 27th in a line of enlightened Buddhas that can be traced back to Siddhartha Gautama, AKA Sakyamuni Buddha. Prajnatara did notice the spiritual potential and wisdom of the youngest prince. And eventually, after the king had died, made Bodhiyatara his chosen disciple you see while everyone else was in mourning over the king's death bodhiyatara remained in a deep state of meditation for like 7 straight days after this bodhiyatara went to prajnatara and asked to be accepted as his disciple prajnatara took him under his wing and imparted all the necessary teachings to make him into a master under prajnatara's tutelage bodhiyatara deepened his understanding of the dharma of course but he also mastered Ayurvedic medicine, acupuncture and martial arts. When he eventually became awakened or enlightened, Prajnatara gave him the name Bodhidharma. He had become the 28th in the unbroken line of realized masters. After completing his training, Bodhidharma was instructed by Prajnatara to travel to China and spread the teachings of Mahayana. When Bodhidharma got there, He found that the people he taught were a little too focused on the conventions of buddhism and not enough on its essence they were too focused on building temples and chanting and not enough on introspection and spiritual growth shortly after arriving bodhidharma was invited to give a lecture to a large number of students at a monastery but all he did was sit in front of them and meditate This lasted for hours. <laughs> Eventually, he stood up and walked away. His uh, his goal was to shock them out of pursuing the exterior trappings of Buddhism, and instead to focus on the journey towards the realization of shunyata, which is emptiness through the means of meditation. Meditation is known in Sanskrit as jhana. That's d h y a n a, but it's pronounced sort of like a j jhana. Mm-hmm. Which, if said just so, sounds a lot like the Chinese Mandarin word for meditation, Chan, Jiana, Chan, Jiana, Chan.
1: Right. Which,
0: Um, again, if said just so, sounds like the Japanese word for meditation, Zen. Chen, Chan, Zen, Chan, Zen.
1: Right. Uh, Alan Watts actually talks about this in his book, The Way of Zen, on page 54, underneath the origins of Buddhism in that chapter. He says here, page 54, he says the word jhana is the original Sanskrit form of the Chinese chan and the Japanese zen, and thus its meaning is of central importance for an understanding of Zen Buddhism. Meditation, in the common sense of thinking things over or musing, is a most misleading translation, but such alternatives as trance or absorption are even worse. Since they suggest states of hypnotic fascination, the best solution seems to be to leave jhana untranslated and add it to the English language, as we have added nirvana and Tao.
0: Yeah, um, when things are dropped in translation like that, it's sometimes better to try and uh, just maintain the original word and recognize that fact. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, one of my favorite sayings is that the biggest misconception about communication is that it actually occurs which actually leads us into the next part here um, which when Bodhi Dharma when his teaching methods reached Emperor Wu who was an avid practitioner of Mahayana Buddhism uh, I mean Emperor Wu supported the Buddhist monks generously, built many temples, promoted vegetarianism, banned animal sacrifice and banned capital punishment. Well, Emperor Wu summoned Bodhidharma to his court and, you know, rattled off all of his accomplishments in promoting Mahayana Buddhism and asked Bodhidharma, what is the merit of this? Bodhidharma said, no merit whatsoever. This really set the emperor off (laughs) because the popular understanding of Buddhism is that if you do good deeds and you acquire merit, it leads you to be reincarnated into better and better lives in the future until you have a life in which you achieve liberation. So Emperor Wu then asked, what is the first principle of the holy doctrine? Bodhidharma said, vast emptiness and nothing holy. An alternative response Bodhidharma may have given was in vast emptiness, there is nothing holy. So slightly different, but, you know, same general principle. Um, Emperor Wu then asked, well, who is it then that stands before us? His implication being, aren't you supposed to be some kind of holy man? And Bodhidharma responded, I don't know. This story is one of the first koans, that's K-O-A-N, koan. Zen koan is a sort of riddle or puzzle usually told as a story intended to instill great doubt towards some preconceived notion to help the Zen student to strip away attachments of false knowledge and regress. Yes, I said regress, not progress, towards realizing the Buddha nature we all possess because we're born with it. So if everything we've done since birth is progressing away from there, then we have to strip it all away, which is why I regularly talk about Zen as a form of unlearning, not so much learning, which is why the Zen teacher has nothing to teach you because they're trying to take you back to when you knew nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so it, it. The the Zen koan helps the student to strip away attachments of false knowledge and regress towards realizing the Buddha nature we all possess. This koan with Bodhidharma and Emperor Wu undermines ideas of identity and holiness. These are both attachments. Identity is but a, a house of cards and holiness falls under the umbrella of the knowledge of good and evil and is a form of arrogance, which is self-ego stroking, which again comes back to identity. Everything by its mere existence is holy. And the attempt to differentiate between holy and unholy is quite ironically unholy. The last response from Bodhidharma in regards to who he is, I don't know, aligns with pillar 5's notion of Zen reincarnation from moment to moment. Having shed the attachment of identity, which is an attachment to a series of past experiences or moments or past lives. Bodhidharma doesn't really know how to answer that question. It doesn't make any sense to him. Right. So his response is makes perfect sense. Um, Emperor Wu went on with his life, not understanding until sometime later what Bodhidharma taught him. Wu said, alas, I saw him without seeing him. I met him without meeting him. I encountered him without encountering him. Now, as before, I regret this deeply. After his encounter with Emperor Wu, Bodhidharma went on to Nanjing on the Yangtze River, where he came across a large crowd rallied around a famous Buddhist monk, Shengguan, a former warrior, a general, who had not entirely lost his taste for aggression. Hmm. Bodhidharma sat down to listen but his constant nodding apparently aggravated Shangguan, <laughs> who eventually took his rosary of heavy beads and hit Bodhidharma in the face <laughs> out of frustration, <laughs> That's awesome. knocking out two of Bodhidharma's teeth. Oh
1: man!
0: As you can imagine, Bodhidharma being Bodhidharma, smiled and walked away. <laughs> yes, you knock out my teeth, I'm gonna smile at you and walk away. Yeah. This, uh, this reaction intrigued Shang-Guan and shang followed Bodhidharma to the river where he was startled to see Bodhidharma gently gliding across the river, standing on a single reed of bamboo. <laughs> now, I've watched those uh, lumberjack games before where they try yeah. and, uh, you know, make each other fall off the log yeah. and, and they're wearing cleats and stuff. This dude's barefoot and he's on a reed, not a log, a reed of bamboo. Talk about Zen, balance, mindfulness, yeah. in order to do something like that. Well, Guan's pride got the best of him, and he attempted the same feat <laughs> unsuccessfully. <laughs> Fortunately, the old lady that he stole a reed from <laughs> saved him.
1: This is why I love Zen stories. Yeah
0: um shang guan soon realized uh that he was being taught a lesson by bodhidharma and as such became interested in knowing Bodhidharma better and becoming his disciple um as more on that later Uh, bodhidharma continued his journey and around 527 ad he arrived at the famous shaolin temple which was founded in uh, around 30 years later or earlier uh, in 495 AD by another Indian Buddhist master Buddha Bhadra. the Shaolin monks had heard of Bodhidharma and Extended an invitation to him to stay at the temple Bodhidharma did not reply mm-hmm. Typical Bodhidharma mm-hmm. Instead he went to a cave in a nearby mountain behind Shaolin and sat down meditating Facing a cave wall for nine years. Oh my. Many stories of legend came of this, such as Bodhidharma's concentration was so intense that an image of his body was engraved in the stone wall before him in the cave. Oh my. Bodhidharma's stillness was so unbroken that all four limbs atrophied and fell off. Oh, <laughs> Bodhidharma, unable to stay awake through those nine years, at one point got aggravated by this and cut off his own eyelids with a knife
1: oh,
0: and threw them to the ground. And where the two scraps of flesh fell, there sprouted the first tea plants that ever grew in China. Oh, oh. These mm-hmm. sound like Chuck Norris facts.
1: Yeah, yeah they do. <laughs> this is the same
0: Chuck Norris. Yeah, he really is. And, and even even more so... Uh, he was a martial artist, so it fits. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. Uh, Shen Guang, the Buddhist monk slash former general who knocked out two of Bodhidharma's teeth with his rosary and then failed to traverse the Yangtze River on a single reed, as Bodhidharma had, finally caught up to Bodhidharma and decided to stand outside the cave and stand guard. After nine years of this, Sheng Guan and the Shaolin monks decided that you know they had to do something so they built a special room for bodhidharma in the temple and this time when bodhidharma was invited to stay in the temple he saying nothing went with them to the temple went to the room sat down and began meditating this went on for another four years Shengguang had now stood guard for 13 years and was kind of starting to get frustrated at having all of his requests to be taught by Bodhidharma ignored. He finally aroused Bodhidharma from his meditation by bringing a massive amount of snow into the room. Huh. He just froze him out or froze him awake, whatever you want to call it. Shengguang demanded to know when Bodhidharma would teach him. And Bodhidharma being Bodhidharma said when red snow will fall from the sky. Shangguan snapped. (laughs) He drew his sword. He raised it up high over his head and in a forceful down sweeping motion, he cut off his own left arm.
1: Oh man.
0: He then picked up the disembodied arm, blood still gushing out, and held it up above his head and whirled it around some of the blood droplets froze in mid-air and floated to the ground like red snow. Oh, wow. At this, Bodhidharma agreed to teach Shangguan. The subsequent conversation became another Zen koan. Shangguan said, Master, my mind is anxious. Please pacify it. Bodhidharma replied, Bring me your mind and I will pacify it shang guan thought about it and finally responded when i look for my mind i cannot find it bodhidharma said there i've pacified it
1: oh that's awesome
0: bodhidharma's next lesson for shang took four more years bodhidharma asked shang guan to live on drum mountain in front of shaolin at the beginning of each year Shengguan was to dig up a well to provide for all of Shaolin's needs. Each year, the water had a different taste. First bitter, then spicy, then sour, then sweet. Shengguan realized that each well represented a phase of his life, and each of these phases was equally beautiful and necessary, just as each of the four seasons is beautiful and necessary in its own way. Bodhidharma imparted these lessons to Shang Guang without words using what was almost an action language that is fundamental to Zen Buddhism. After this realization, Guan was given the name Hui Ke by his master, and he became the abbot of Shaolin after Bodhidharma. It is a Shaolin tradition to pay respect to Guan's sacrifice, to only greet each other using only their right hand. While Shen Guan was digging wells on Drum Mountain, we can assume that Bodhidharma was sharing his teachings with the Shaolin monks. According to some traditional accounts, he may have also taught them how to fight. Some claim Bodhidharma taught them Kung Fu, but this is a bit reductive and ignorant of nuance. Um, while it's true that Bodhidharma was a master of Indian martial arts, Prajnatara, Bodhidharma's master, taught Bodhidharma more martial arts, and there is some artwork at Shaolin depicting a darker-skinned monk training lighter-skinned students in a variety of hand-to-hand combat techniques. It's also true that the first codified form of Chinese martial arts, Jiao Di, predates Bodhidharma by at least 3,000 years. So, I mean, you have, like we say, the, the universe, is an ongoing process, and so too is Kung Fu. It may have had roots in multiple places, much like Zen Buddhism did, and things merged together, and certain elements were excluded over time, certain elements were included over time, and boom, then you have Kung Fu. Um, There is a record of Bodhidharma teaching some physical exercises to the monks. These aren't necessarily combat-related, though, the exercises known as the 18 hands of Lohan were intended to build up the monk's chi, to build health and nourish their brains, which was a necessary step to awakening. Um, Bodhidharma defines Zen as a, quote, a special transmission outside the scriptures, no dependence on words and letters, direct pointing to the mind of man seeing into one's nature and attaining Buddhahood. According to Bodhidharma, the best tool for this is meditation or Zazen. Focusing on breath helps build concentration during Zen. After you do enough meditation, your concentration builds up. The true goal of Zazen is that there should not be any goal or expectation to a particular session. Practitioners should just sit and be present in the now. The end of Bodhidharma's life contains plenty more legend. He apparently survived two poison attacks by rivals before succumbing to the third poison attack, uh, apparently at the age of 150.
1: Oh wow, (laughs) that's old.
0: Yeah. I I think uh, Lao Tzu was also supposed to be quite old as well. Not not just the name, but like I I think I saw somewhere that he was like 200 years old or something stupid like that. Legendary. Yeah,
1: that's some that's some Old Testament like Moses. Right.
0: It seems to be the case. They lived a long time back then. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Some some legends say that three years later, after Bodhidharma died. A Chinese diplomat named Song Yun was returning from a trip to the West when he impar- apparently encountered Bodhidharma, who was on his way back to India, barefoot, with one shoe in his hands. When Song Yun got home and told the story, apparently people went and opened up Bodhidharma's grave, which they say was empty except for one shoe. Hmm. Um, Another version of Bodhidharma's final years tells of how Bodhidharma went to Japan, disguised as a beggar, and met with Prince Shotoku Taishi, who is celebrated as the first great patron of Buddhism in Japan. It is heavily disputed, though, as to whether Bodhidharma actually traveled to Japan. However, his ideas and his branch of Buddhism definitely gained great popularity there. He gained the name Daruma, which pretty closely resembles Dharma. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So they even have these special Daruma dolls that, uh, you know, don't have any limbs on them, which is a shout out to his limbs atrophying and falling off when he was meditating. Um, It it doesn't have any eyelids on there. Again, same thing. Um, He's usually depicted as wearing red. uh, So that's on there. He's quite, quite robust in that, you know, like a Buddha just sitting there getting yeah. gets kind of blobby. Right. So that that's uh that's Dharma in a nutshell.
1: Yeah, I like the uh the bit about him uh his grave. And they only finding one shoe in the grave just brought brought, you know remnants of the uh resurrection story to my head.
0: Yeah. There's that, and then kind of more hilariously and totally unrelated, it reminds me of when looters rob shoe stores and they <laughs> they steal the uh, display shoes, which are all only like left shoes. <laughs> right. All the right shoes are back in the back store of the store, and they they, they run away and they've got thirty-seven left shoes. So oh, yeah, good, good luck with that. Yeah, let's talk about stuff. karma.
1: <laughs> right, that's good stuff. Um. So I guess we'll move on from there and. So you were talking about Bodhi
0: and, and he had, uh, he, he's the founder. And of course, if you're the founder of Zen Buddhism and Zen Buddhism is still around today, then there must've been a bunch of people between him and now who brought it to us. Right? So we've right. talked about, um, Shang who, after he was enlightened, gained the name Huike, or there's an uh, alternative way What's what's
1: the way? What's the other other way it's written? Huico, Huico, Huike, and
0: Huico. I guess yes. it's kind of like Lao Tzu and Lao Tzu. There's the, sort of different ways to anglicize these right. names.
1: Um Well, I guess I'll just kind of pick it up from there. Um, Huico, uh, Alan Watts, in the way of Zen, he writes his name down as Huico, uh, but he says that his his successor is said to have been saying san and the story of their initial interview is of the same form as between huiko and bodhidharma except that where huiko asked for peace of mind saying twat saying son asked to be a cleansed of faults
0: and by the way before you go too much deeper into that story one thing i didn't mention um, in my rundown is that when um shangwan or huike or huiko or whatever you want to call him asked bodhidharma to pacify his mind and bodhidharma said bring out your mind and i'll pacify it and um he said I, well i can't i can't find it and bodhidharma said there i've pacified it that was the moment
1: when shangwan became enlightened Right. So
0: that, that, that was the moment when transmission of enlightenment took place.
1: Right. Kind of like how we talked before with, uh, uh Gautama giving the flower.
0: Right. Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so he goes on here to him. There is attributed a celebrated poem called the Shin Xin Ming, the treatise on faith in the mind. If Sang Tsan was indeed its author, this poem is the first clear and comprehensive statement of Zen. It's Taoist flavor is apparent in the opening lines. The perfect Tao is without difficulty, save that it avoids picking and choosing. The fourth patriarch following Sang Tsan, is believed to have been Tao Xin. When he came to saying Tsan, he asked, what is the method of liberation? Who binds you? Replied Seng San. No one binds me. Why then? Asked Seng San. Should you seek liberation? And this was Tao Xin's Satori. The Xuan Teng Lu records a fascinating encounter between Tao Xin and the sage Fa Yun who lived on a, no- a lonely temple on Mount Nietu and was so holy that the birds used to bring him offerings of flowers. As the two men were talking, a wild animal roared close by, and Tao Xin jumped. Fao Yung commented, I see it is still with you, referring, of course, to the instinctive passion of fright. Shortly afterwards, While he was, for a moment, unobserved, Tao Shin wrote the Chinese character for Buddha on the rock where Fa-Yung was accustomed to sit. When Fa-Yung returned to sit down again, he saw the sacred name and hesitated to sit. I see, said Tao Shin. It is still with you. At this remark, Fa-Yung was fully awakened. And the birds never brought any more flowers. <laughs> the fifth patriarch, and here we begin to enter a more reliable chapter of history, was Hung Jan. At his first meeting with Hung Jan, the patriarch asked, What is your name? I have a nature, replied Hung Jan, punning, But it's no usual nature what is this name inquired the patriarch missing the pun it's Buddha nature you have no name then that's because it's an empty nature Hung John was apparently the first of the patriarchs to have any large following for it is said that he presided over a group of some 500 monks in a monastery on the yellow plum mountain at the eastern end of modern Hupe. He is, however, much overshadowed by his immediate successor, Hui Neng, whose life and teaching marked the definitive beginning of a truly Chinese Zen, of Zen as it flourished during what was later called the Epoch of Zen activity. The later 200s, later 200 years of the Tang Dynasty from about 700 to 906. Uh one must not look, overlook Hui Nang's contemporaries, for he lived at a time which was most creative for Chinese Buddhism as a whole. The great translator and traveler, Suan Sang, had returned from India in 645 and was expounding the Vijnapitan Matra. I totally just butchered that. <laughs> uh, the Vijnapti Matra. Yeah, the Vijnapti Matra doctrines of the Yogacara, in changan his former student fa Zang, was developing the important school of the Hyayen, japanese kegon based on the based on the avatamsaka sutra and which later provided zen with a formal philosophy nor must we forget that not so long before these two men chi kai had written his remarkable treatise on the Mahayana method of cessation and contemplation, containing the fundamental teaching of the Tiantai school, which is in many ways close to Zen. Much of Chi Kai's treatise foreshadows, in both content and terminology, the doctrines of Huineng and some of his immediate successors. Hui Nang is said to have had his first awakening, when almost as a boy, he happened to overhear someone reading the Vajra Chedika. He set out almost at once for Hui Jiang’s monastery at Wang Mei, to have his understanding confirmed and to receive further instruction. We should note that his original Satori occurred spontaneously, without the benefit of a master. And that his biography represents him as an illiterate peasant from the neighborhood of Canton. Apparently, Huang Jan immediately recognized the depth of his insight, but fearing that his humble origins might make him unacceptable in a community of scholarly monks, the patriarch put him to work in the kitchen compound. Some time later, the patriarch announced that he was looking for a successor to whom he might transmit his office. Together with the robe, and begging bowl which is said to have been handed down from the Buddha which were its insignia this honor was to be conferred upon the person who submitted the best poem expressing his understanding of Buddhism the chief monk of the community was then a certain Shen Shui and all the others naturally assumed that the office would go to him and so made no attempt to compete Shen Shui however was in doubt as to his own understanding and decided to submit his poem anonymously, claiming authorship only if the patriarch approved it during the night. Then he posted the following lines in the corridor near the patriarchs quarters. The body is the Bodhi tree, the mind like a bright mirror standing, take care to wipe it all the time and allow no dust to cling the following morning the patriarch read the poem and ordered incense to be burned before it saying that all who put it into practice would be enabled to realize their true nature but when shen shui came to him in a pri- in private and claimed authorship the patriarch declared that his understanding was still far from perfect on the following day another poem appeared beside the first There never was a Bodhi tree, nor bright mirror standing. Fundamentally, not one thing exists. So, where is the dust to cling? The patriarch knew that only Hui Nang could have written this, but to avoid jealousy, he rubbed out the poem with his shoe and summoned Hui Nang to his room secretly by night. Here he conferred the patriarchate the robe and the bowl upon him and told him to flee into the mountains until the hurt feelings of the other monks had subsided and the time was ripe for him to begin his public teaching. You have anything to say about that?
0: You got to love an underdog story, right? <laughs> I mean, we, we were talking before that you don't necessarily have to have someone teach you. You don't have to study Zen you can just get it right. That lightning flashes, you know, the stars align and boom, you've got it. And, um, that this is one of those awesome instances. Um, but you know, the uh, fact that he had to sort of hide it and kind of manipulate the process and bring the kid in, work him in the kitchen, you know, so that way they can claim, Oh, he got, he got to study because he was a kitchen boy and he, uh, I don't know that the, the second poem is obviously superior to the, the first one. Right. And
1: he, he goes on in, in in the book here to talk about the differences between the two poems and how they reflect different kinds of Zen and how the first one it reflects, uh, what's his name? Uh, 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 uh Shen Shui and how his poem is the more distinct or yeah, is the more distinctive type of, uh, uh, a Zen. That focuses on intense meditation and 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 wiping away the uh, uh, things you're attached to right um, it says right here uh, what was apparently the general and popular view of jhana, which as we talked about is meditation uh, practice in Chinese Buddhism it was obviously understood as the disciple of sitting meditation in which the mind was purified by an intense concentration which would cause all thoughts and attachments to cease. Whereas the second poem is more along the lines of what Zen actually wants. The second
0: poem is the bald kid from the matrix saying there is no spoon. Exactly.
1: And well, contest one. Yes. <laughs> <over. laughs> um, so Hui Nang died in 713. And with his death, the institution of the patriarchate ceased. For the ge- genealogical tree of Zen put forth branches. Nang's tradition passed to five disciples Huizhang, Qinghuan, Shenhui, Xuanque, and Hui The spiritual descendants of Huizhang and Xing Su live on today as the two principal schools of Zen in Japan, the Rinzai. And the Soto. In the following two centuries, following the death of Huineng, the proliferation of lines of descent and schools of Zen is quite complex, and we need do no more than consider some of the more influential individuals. So he mentioned um, how, what was his name? Huineng. Huineng, when he died, he he moved. he, he transferred. The patriarch onto his five disciples. So this is where Zen kind of branches off into the spiderweb style, and this is where this is why it's also kind of hard to find a particular singular history of Zen because there's so many different rabbit holes to travel down. But one of Huineng's uh, disciples was Zhang. and the following story is told of Zhang initiating into Zen, his great successor. Uh, successor Matsu, who was at the time practicing sitting med- meditation at the monastery of Xuanfa. Your Reverence asked Huai Zhang, "What is the objective of sitting in meditation?" The objective, answered Matsu, "is to become a Buddha." Thereupon, Huai Zhang picked up a floor tile and began to polish it on a rock. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing, Master? Asked Matsu. <laughs> I am polishing it for a mirror, said Huaijing. <laughs> How could polishing a tile make a mirror? How could sitting in meditation make a Buddha? Matsu was the first Zen master celebrated for strange words and extraordinary behavior. <laughs> Obviously, he learned it from... Zhang,
0: who, I mean,
1: and obviously Bodhidharma. Yeah, he has him too. Um, Matsu. He had two disciples and with with his two disciples, Nan Chuan and his successor, Chao Chu. The teaching of Zen became peculiarly lively and disturbing. The Wu Men Kuan tells how Nan Chuan interrupted a dispute among his monks as to the ownership of a cat by threatening to cleave the animal with his spade if none of the monks could say a good word. That is, give an immediate expression of his Zen. There was dead silence. So the master cut the cat in two. (laughs) Later in the day, Nan Chuan recounted the incident to Chao Chuo who at once put his shoes on his head and left the room. Nailed it. (laughs) Right. If you had been there, said Nan Chuan, the cat would have been saved.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yep.
1: I love Zen stories. You
0: know, we did mention earlier that uh, Mahayana is more of a liberal approach, which I said, there's many ways to skin a cat.
1: Well, he found Um, one.
0: Took it kind of literally there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he did. Chao uh, Chu is said to have had his awakening after the following incident with Nan Shuan. Chao Chu asked, "What is the Tao?" The master replied, "Your ordinary mind is the Tao. How can one return into accord with it? By intending to accord, you have immediately deviate. But without intention, how can one know the Tao?" The Tao, said the master, belongs to neither. Knowing nor not knowing. Knowing is false understanding. Not knowing is blind ignorance. If you really understand the Tao, beyond doubt, it's like the empty sky. Why drag in right and wrong? When Chao Chu asked whether a dog has Buddha nature, which is certainly the usual Mahayana doctrine, he gave the one word no, or the Japanese wu or mu. When a monk asked him for instruction, he merely inquired whether he had eaten his gruel and then added, Go wash your bowl. When asked about the spirit, which remains when the body has decomposed, he remarked, This morning it's windy again. (laughs)
0: Zen stories are usually pretty quirky. I, I just, it, it, it gives me fits. It's, it's, it's so hilarious and random at times. Yeah. Sometimes it's so poignant and right there, it just smacks you in the face and other times you like total WTF. Yeah. Like I, 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 I'm not gonna lie. I love WTF moments. It's a personal giving and receiving them. Yeah,
1: me too. It's,
0: and, and it's the, the spice of life, you know,
1: I love them. So Matsu had another notable disciple in Po Chang who is said to have organized the first purely Zen community of monks and to have laid down its regulations on the principle that a day of no working is a day of no eating. Po Chang's student, Huang Po, is also of considerable importance in this period. Not only was he the teacher of the great Lin Chi, but he was also the author of the Chuan Xin Fa Yao, or treatise on the essentials of the doctrine of mind. The content of this work is essentially the same body of doctrines as found in Huineng, Shenhui, and Matsu, but it contains some passages of remarkable clarity, as well as some frank and care- careful answers to questions at the end.
0: Linji mentioned in that bit there, of course, if Linji is uh, the Chinese version of Rinzai. Hmm. Linji Rinzai, especially when you think about how certain uh, people from certain areas of the world have serious, serious trouble pronouncing Ls.
1: Yes, this is true. (laughs) Uh, It appears, however, that Huang Po's personal instruction of his disciples was not always so explanatory. Uh, Linji, Japanese Rinzai, (coughs) could never get a word out of him. Every time he attempted to ask a question, Huang Po struck him until in desperation, he left the monastery and sought the advice of another master, Tai Yu, who scolded him for being so ungrateful for Huang Po's grandmotherly (laughs) kindness. This awakened Lin Ji and again presented himself before Huang Po. This time, however, it was Lin Chi who did the striking saying, there is not much in Huang Po's Buddhism after all. <clears throat> the record of Linji's teachings, uh, the Linji Lu, shows a character of immense vitality and originality. Lecturing his students in informal and often somewhat racy language, <laughs> uh, I, 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 I gotta say, does I feel like we just need like episodes like of a a Netflix series of just all of these Zen stories. Just they're great.
0: Yeah. You could, you could do a, um, a a short, like just a, uh, you know, a sketch a day and, and throw it out on YouTube and just have actors act out these uh, Zen stories. And they'd they'd be a hit.
1: Oh, they're, they're, they're hilarious. Um, So we'll move on here. Uh, In Matsu, Nan Shuan, Chao Chao Chu, Huangpo and Linqi, we can see the flavor of Zen at its best, Taoist and Buddhist, as it is in its original inspiration. It is also something more. It is so earthly, so matter of fact, and so direct. The difficulty of translating the records of these masters is that their style of Chinese is neither classical nor modern, but rather the colloquial speech. Of the Tang Dynasty. Uh, let's see here. Yet in the late Tang Dynasty, the genius and vitality of Zen was such that it was coming to be the dominant form of Buddhism in China, though its relation to other schools was often very close. Sung Mi was simultaneously a Zen master in the fifth patriarch of the Huayan school, representing the philosophy Of the Avatamsaka Sutra. This extremely subtle and mature form of Mahayana philosophy was employed by Tung Shan in developing the doctrine of the five ranks concerning the fivefold relationships to the absolute and the relative, and was related by his student Sao Shan to the philosophy of the I Ching the Book of Changes. Fa Yen and Fen Yang were also influential masters who made a deep study of the Hua Yen, and to this day it contributes, as it were, the intellectual aspect of Zen. On the other hand, such masters as Tai Chao and Yen Shu maintained close relations with the Tiantai or Pure Land schools. In eight forty five there was a brief but vigorous persecution of Buddhism by the Taoist Emperor Wu Tsung temples and monasteries were destroyed their lands confiscated and the monks compelled to return to lay life fortunately his enthusiasm for Taoist alchemy soon involved him in experiments with the elixir of mort- immortality and from partaking of this concoction he shortly died Zen had survived the persecution better than any other school and now, entered into a long era of imperial and popular favor. Hundreds of monks thronged its wealthy monastic institutions, and the fortunes of the school was so prospered, and its numbers so increased, that the preservation of its spirit became a very serious problem. Still, another crucial problem arises when a spiritual institution comes into prosperity and power the very human problem of competition for office, and of who has the right to be a master. Concern for this problem is reflected in the writing of the Tang Lu, or Record of the Transmission of the Lamp, by Tao Yan, in about 1004. For one of the main objects of this work was to establish a proper quote-unquote apostolic succession for the Zen tradition. So, that no one could claim authority unless his Satori had been approved by someone who had been approved right back to the time of the Buddha himself. Uh, So, that's kind of what we were talking about earlier, what I brought up earlier about how there's kind of their own little form of apostolic succession. It's sort of a blockchain, it's a
0: Buddha
1: chain. It's the Buddha chain, right? The period of prosperity, which came with the 10th and 11th centuries, was attended by a sense of loss of spirit which in turn gave rise to much study of the great Tang masters. Their anecdotes were subsequently collected in such anthologies as the Pian Lu and the Wu Men Kuan. The use of these anecdotes for the Koan method was originated by Yuan Wu and his disciple Ta Hui in the 10th or 11th generation of descent from Lin Ji. However, something which already began to resemble it was employed by Huang Lung in order to cope with his particularly large following. He devised three test questions, known as Huang Lung's Three Barriers. The Koan system was developed in the Linji Rinzai school of Zen, but not without opposition. The Soto school felt that it was much too artificial whereas the koan advocates use this technique as a means for encouraging that overwhelming feeling of doubt, I Ching, which they felt to be essential as a prerequisite for Satori. The Soto school argued that it lent itself too easily to that very seeking for Satori, which thrusts it away, or what is worse, induces an artificial Satori. Uh, I do want to pause right there, and focus on what he just talked about with the uh, Rinzai and Soto. But I feel it might do us a uh, do us good to go over it a little bit now, seeing as it just got mentioned. Um,
0: Sure. Well, basically um, the two different schools of Zen uh, that proliferated to today are Soto and Rinzai. Uh, Rinzai actually comes from uh, the, the Chinese Linji, L-I-N-J-I, and it is a lot more in line with, uh, we call it Samurai Zen, and Soto Zen, we sort of call it Farmer Zen. Um, There was a guy, Kaizen Jokin Zenji, Uh, he was a leader of the Soto Zen um, in the generation after Dogen. Uh, Kaizen became abbot of a temple far out on the remote Noto Peninsula, which he renamed Sojiji, that is associated with the spread of Soto Zen. While Kaizen shared Dogen's basic thought on Zen, they differed in personality and environment. Where Dogen was rigorous and stern, Kaizen was mild and gentle. Where Dogen had to Deepen the Zen religious experience, Kaizen was the teacher who led others to this joy. Uh, He was the friend of the common people. He met everything with a warm heart and shared the joy of others. Soto Zen was established by the stern fatherly character of Dogen and the compassionate motherly character of Kaizen. The Soto sect was founded by Dogen, but consolidated by Kaizen. Dogen educated few disciples, whereas Kaizen profited the multitude. It's said that at the end of his life, Kaizen, who created a simpler farmer's Zen that appealed to common folk, wandered around with a broken rain hat and a skinny cane, meeting people wherever he went and crowds of people submitted to him. And while Dogen might not have recognized his teachings as presented by kaizen and others i mean he he wouldn't have recognized them they are his teachings but they were uh transformed by his his pupil um
1: game and telephone right
0: Right. (laughs) particularly with the inclusion of esoteric prayers and tantric incantations adapted from Shingun, it was they who broadened soto's appeal allowing it to endure it to the present day rinzai on the other hand um, you've got this guy isai uh, who was little more than a tendai priest who dabbled a bit in chan or zen practice during the early era zen he was it was mainly a reformation within the tendai school the japanese understanding of chan was hesitant and inconclusive to the point that few japanese of the mid 13th century actually realized a new form of Buddhism was in the making. Um, Soon after Dogen returned to Japan from China, however, Rinzai arrived with a number of Chinese masters who began emigrating to teach the Japanese in Kamakura. As well, Japanese monks were traveling to China in such numbers that those aspiring to the Dharma were referred to as longing for the Dharma entering the land of Song. While Soto became the low-key homegrown Zen, Rinzai became a vehicle for importing Chinese culture to the ruling classes, both the imperial court and to the shogunate warrior class. Rinzai Zen appealed to the warrior samurai because of its emphasis on discipline, on experience over education, and On a rough-and-tumble practice, including debates with a master and blows for the loser, all
1: congenial to
0: men of simple unschooled tastes.
1: Adherents of the Rinzai school sometimes say that the intensity of the satori is proportionate to the intensity of the feeling of doubt, of blind seeking which precedes it. But for Soto, This suggests that such a Satori has a dualistic character, and is thus no more than an artificial emotional reaction. Thus, Soto's view was that proper jhana lay in motiveless action, in sitting just to sit, or walking just to walk. The two schools, therefore, came to be known respectively as the Kanhua Zen and Mo Chao Zen. The Rinzai school of Zen was introduced into Japan in 1191 by the Japanese Tiantai monk Eisai, who established monasteries at Kyoto and Kamakura under imperial patronage. The Soto school was introduced in 1227 by the extraordinary genius Dogen, who established the great monastery of Eheiji, refusing, however, to accept imperial favors. It should be noted that Zen arrived in Japan shortly after the beginning of the Kamakura era, when the military director, Yoritomo, and his samurai followers had seized power from the hands of the then somewhat decadent nobility. This historical coincidence provided the military class, the samurai, with a type of Buddhism which appealed to them strongly because of its practical and earthly qualities and because of the directness and simplicity of its approach. Thus, there arose that peculiar way of life called Bushido, the Tao of the warrior, which is essentially the application of Zen to the arts of war. The association of the peace-loving doctrine of the Buddha with the military arts has always been a puzzle to Buddhists of other schools. It seems to involve the complete divorce of awakening from morality. But one must face the fact that, in its essence, the Buddhist experiences a liberation from conventions of every kind, including the moral conventions. On the other hand, Buddhism is not a revolt against convention. And in societies where the military caste is an integral part of the conventional structure and the warrior's role an accepted necessity, Buddhism will make it possible for him to fulfill that role as a Buddhist. The medieval cult of chivalry should be no less of a puzzle to the peace-loving Christian. The contribution of Zen to Japanese culture has by no means been confined to Bushido. It has entered into almost every aspect of the people's life, their architecture, poetry, painting, gardening, their athletics, crafts, and trades. It has penetrated the everyday language and thought of the most ordinary folk. For by the genius of such Zen monks as Dogen, Hakuin and Bankei by such poets as Ryokan and Basho and by such a painter as Sesshu Zen has been made extraordinary extraordinarily accessible to the common mind Dogen in particular made an incalculable contribution to his native land his immense work the Shobingenzo treasury of the eye of the true doctrine was written in the vernacular and covered every aspect of Buddhism, from its formal discipline to its profoundest insights. His doctrine of time, change, and relativity is explained with the aid of the most provoking poetic images, and it is only regrettable that no one has yet had the time and talent to translate this work into English. Hakuen reconstituted the Koan system and is said to have trained no less than 80 successors in Zen. Banke found a way of presenting Zen with such ease and simplicity that it seemed almost too good to be true. He spoke to large audiences of farmers and country folk, but no one important seems to have dared follow him. Meanwhile, Zen continued to prosper in China until well into the Ming Dynasty. When the divisions between the various schools of Buddhism began to fade and the popularity of the Pure Land School with its easy way of invoking the name of Amitabha began to be fused with Koen practice, and at last to absorb it. A few Zen communities seem to have survived to the present day, but, so far as I have been able to study them, their emphasis inclines either to Soto or to the more occultist preoccupations of Tibetan Buddhism. The history of Chinese Zen raises one problem of great fascination. Both Rinzai and Soto Zen, as we find them in Japanese monasteries today, put enormous emphasis on Zazen, or sitting meditation, a practice which they follow for many hours of the day, attaching great importance to the correctness of posture and the way of breathing which it involves. To practice Zen is to all intents and purposes to practice Zazen, to which the Rinzai school adds Sanzen, the periodic visits to the master, For presenting one's view of the koan. Alternatively, it could be assumed that the type of zazen under criticism is zazen practiced for a purpose, to get Buddhahood instead of sitting just to sit. This would concur with Soto objection to the Rinzai school, with its method of cultivating the state of great doubt by means of the koan. While the Soto is not quite fair to the Rinzai in this respect, This would certainly be a plausible interpretation of the early master's doctrine. However, there are several references to the idea that prolonged sitting is not much better than being dead. There is, of course, a proper place for sitting along with standing, walking and lying, but to imagine that sitting contains some special virtue is attachment to form. Even in Japanese Zen, one occasionally encounters a Zen practice which lays no special emphasis upon zazen. But rather stresses the use of one's ordinary work as the means of meditation. This was certainly true of Banki, and this principle underlies the common use of such arts as tea ceremony, flute playing, brush drawing, archery, fencing, and jiu-jitsu as ways of practicing je- Zen. Perhaps, then, the exaggeration of Zazen in later times is part and parcel of the conversion of the Zen monastery into a boy's training school. To have them sit still for hours on end under the watchful eyes of monitors with sticks is certainly a sure method of keeping them out of mischief. So I totally forgot that Watts referenced, I've
0: read this book, but I totally had forgotten that he referenced sword fighting and Mm -hmm. jujitsu.
1: Yeah. Which jujitsu is from my understanding, the, as I've mentioned before, is the gentle art of folding clothes while people are still inside of them.
0: Correct. Um, came out of judo and uh the gentle way judo uh, there's a judo practitioner who did something wrong and the judo club was like you can't teach judo no more and he was like fine i'll teach jiu-jitsu and he (laughs) went to brazil and that's where the gracie family um kind of took over and um, started doing brazilian jiu-jitsu
1: and Right. Went into the UFC and all that. One other thing
0: I was going to mention is um, you mentioned the uh, how Zen um, it, it integrated its way into all various aspects of Japanese everyday life and culture. Well, the um, the, the poet that one of the poets that was mentioned, Basho, is uh, the poem that I read to start the episode off. Yep, And one of the reasons that I uh, wanted to do that is because um, there's a cryptocurrency called Cardano that is going through the second of five phases of uh, evolution currently. And um, the fourth phase is actually named after Basho. (laughs) And the the reason that that is the case is because um, they want... So with haiku, oftentimes with only 17 syllables to work with, um, you you're getting a lot of uh, bang for your buck, right? you're You're getting a lot of meaning with very little utterance, with very little script. Yep. Um, and so that that can be viewed as a form of efficiency. And so in order for the Cardano blockchain to scale, to accept, you know millions and hundreds of millions and maybe even billions of users doing you know all these transactions all the time, they are naming the fourth uh, upgrade, Basho to try and uh, you know they're, they're using him as a uh, as an example of efficiency that they right. uh, you know would like to strive to achieve with their yeah. blockchain, which that's I cool. that was awesome.
1: Yeah, that is pretty cool. So well, that's that's everything that's in the rest of uh, at least for our purposes for what we want to use it for, that's everything that's left in. The way of zen by Alan watts and that's everything else that i have for as far as the history of zen um there was quite a bit we had a lot of information but it was all you know if you want to do something like a history of zen you either start a podcast or have a very long episode of a podcast to go over it. It's a lot. We, we left a lot out. We did. We left a whole bunch out. We were skipping I mean, stuff left and right, but we did also give you a lot of information. And in true Zen style, we don't even know how much we left out. <laughs> Not at all. have no idea. But we did put a lot of work into setting this up. And hopefully, you know, we conveyed a sense of historical Uh, timeline through this that is somewhat tangible, comprehensive. Uh, I wish I could uh, put a picture of my name list. I I spent a very, very long time writing down every name that we mentioned, (laughs) because it was in the book, and I read it and every name I came across, I wrote down in the time. I did it for nothing. I don't even know why I did it to begin with in the first place. Cause that's the Zen thing to do It's very, I guess I thought I was making progress, but
0: you're regressing,
1: Yeah, <laughs> regressing, but, but that's, I guess that's everything we have. If you want to know anything else about the history of Zen, I suggest going ahead and checking out the way of Zen by Alan Watts. Um, if you are a Catholic and you want to know more about the history of Zen, uh, I still suggest reading Alan Watts, but I suggest being cautious when reading Alan Watts because he is a master of words and he will pull you into things very quickly.
0: And if you're like me and you don't actually enjoy reading all that much and you prefer to listen to things like podcasts, um, YouTube has quite a number of Alan Watts's speeches or lectures available. And so you, you can kind of get a lot of... Uh, Zen stories from him that way. In fact, I believe there are multiple hours worth of him just telling Zen stories on YouTube, yeah. so th- that's worth checking out.
1: Yep, and the, the Zen stories, those are the primary way that enlightenment and awakening was passed down f- from all the masters to other pupils, and that's really the only history that Zen has, because there's no real writing for any of it. It's all done with dr- direct pointing master to student direct transmission of awakening
0: that was Bodhidharma's way
1: yep so all right man if you're still with me with us, well, Rufus is gone now. I'm now back to being solo for the outro here. But if you're still with me here, man, I, I just want to say I appreciate you for sticking around for so long and listening to a two hour long episode about the history of Zen. <laughs> it's quite a commitment. And we did like we didn't even cover everything, there's tons that we skipped. Tons as obviously we were trying to cover the pertinent bullet points of the history, but. There's still a lot more we could have talked about. And we didn't even talk about the, develop, the the developments of the doctrines that each of these people contributed to throughout the time. So that's why I said there's a very deep and rich history and it could take a very long time to go through. Actually multiple, multiple episodes. Probably a whole series. Which is what I think I've decided to do with the history of Catholicism. So I'm going to do a history of Catholicism series. Um... So, I've decided to do different series of different episodes. There's the normal episodes, the Zen Mind episodes, which have this song. And then you've, no doubt if you've heard my two previous episodes, the bonus episodes, whenever I do my scripture and parables episodes, you'll hear the rap song, Can You Hear That?, by the band named Rehab, because of the lyrics I've got a bullet in my Bible aimed like a rifle for the heart of men I got my dewey Rams locked and loaded on the scripture and parables episodes and so it just fits and then when I've begun to do the history of Catholicism I'm going to switch to a new song it'll be a surprise I won't tell anyone but just be prepared I like switching songs I'm a big music fan so it'll happen a lot Anyways, I've rambled too much about that. So, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and do me the honor of sharing it, writing me a good review. If you want to get a hold of me, you can email me, catholiczenmind at yahoo.com. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, just type in Catholic with the Zen mind. You can find me on there. Uh, same picture as the show. Or, I think it's forward slash J Martin Catholic Zenmind. And you follow me on Twitter at KOFC at KFC underscore Crusader. Follow me on there, find me on Facebook, send me an email, you know. Let me know what you're all thinking. But I let it I wanna thank you all for being here. For listening to such a long episode. Um, this was all primarily Zen based and there's a few things that a Catholic needs to pay attention to in this episode and that's the I Ching and it's divination we're not supposed to do divination that's expressly forbidden Um, and there were a few other things just be please be very careful if you start looking deeper into the history of Zen do it with a very scrutinizing fine-tooth comb and always double-check what you're researching with the catechism of the Catholic Church But until next time, everybody, when we might or might not go over Catholic history, send hard or don't, pray harder, and God bless.
0: Hey, hey there, listeners. Are you enjoying the show? Do you want more content? If there was a way you could contribute financially to the show, might that interest you? Well, we've been working on that, and for now we've got a way you can support the podcast It's to buy CBD products from our affiliate link, which we'll put in the show notes. C T F O that's changing the future outcome. C T F O CBD is the fastest growing CBD company. Get excellent pricing on top quality organic hemp CBD products and support the podcast at the same time. According to the Harvard health blog, CBD may help treat certain forms of childhood epilepsy, anxiety, insomnia, chronic pain, arthritis, and may help to inhibit inflammatory and neuropathic pain. All 50 states have laws legalizing CBD with varying degrees of restriction, so check your local laws. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe and tell your friends.